Welcome back to Rethoughts. Today I sit down with my good friend and fellow philosophy enthusiast, Cole Holloway. Cole is an animator and visual artist. As an avid fan of philosophy, he enjoys combining the two and creating visual art that ideally invokes out-of-the-box thoughts. If you would like to support Rethoughts, please like, subscribe, and leave us a review on wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com rethoughts. Or you can visit rethoughts.com and visit our store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. You wear a mask for so long, you forget who you were beneath. Thought has developed traditionally in a way such that it claims not to be affecting anything but just telling you the way things are. That doesn't make sense. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. I know exactly what you mean. If you're real, you better tell me right now! What is real? How do you define real? Revolution of the mind. Welcome back to Rethoughts. I'm sitting here with Cole Holloway, a good friend of mine who uh, we, you know, have these just philosophical uh, discussions where, you know, we answer the most important questions in life that you could ask and we contemplate and come to. Um, really no conclusion. We normally just, uh, <laughs> it's mostly hopeless banter, but, uh, yeah, I wanted to let Cole tell us a little bit about himself. Uh, Cole. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I, right now I'm an animator and, but for a very long time, I think I'm pretty sure we went over this, but, uh, yeah, around like when I was like 18 or 17, really start getting into uh, philosophy. I think we both kind of related that um, based on where we grew up in, we were asking these kind of more heavier questions at a younger age and just kind of grew up in that sort of uh, dissatisfaction with kind of the answers we were getting, um, which at the time I think is a, a really good thing because that just grows your appetite for uh, digging deeper and discovering really big truths. You mentioned that uh, we answer some of the most difficult questions but it's like more like it's more of the process of i guess just asking and asking and asking and then trying to navigate the morass of gray area getting just to some point where it's like oh this makes sense it may not be entirely perfect it may not be entirely uh rock solid but it's like uh the most enjoyable place to be Mm -hmm. um so Career-wise, I've been doing animation, and I'm luckily at a position where I can kind of marry the two together, where uh, I can visually explain and visually communicate more complex or more difficult ideas uh, just for people who wouldn't have uh, the natural curiosity or the natural hunger, or even better, inspire that sort of natural curiosity or natural hunger for uh, these things. I remember, I think I mentioned this to you when I was one of the first sort of 
the philosophical questions I had when I was very young was like, uh, I remember, I can't remember the pastor's name, but it was like at some sort of Christian camp. And I was like, uh, why is it that whenever like I want to buy something, I get really hyped up for what I'm going to buy. And like, I can't wait to get this item or uh, receive this. But as soon as I get it in a matter of hours or days, uh, that high is gone. And then now I'm like right back at square one trying to get the next thing. And he, I remember he was just kind of like, um, yeah, man, great, great thought. And I was like, that's all you got. I thought you like the, the, the pinnacle of wisdom. I remember, uh, as well in another way, uh, Alan Watts had a similar experience where he was very young and, uh, there was going to be like, he was like 13 or something. And there was this grand, uh, very personal private discussion that like the headmaster of his boarding school or of his ministry uh, was going to sit down with all the boys in his class and go over. And uh, so he's like really excited and really pumped up to like, Oh, what like grand revelation is going to be like uh, talked about what's, what's going to go on here. And then he goes on to talk about his complete disappointment and that it was like just his uh, pastor giving like this or his, had minister giving like just this very watered down, like uh, you better wait until marriage before you have sex or like fire and brimstone. And he was so disappointed. Yeah. Um, so I guess it was a good, for, for the podcast and for the discussion, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, I have a deep love for philosophy, a deep love for visual arts. And uh, I guess what I'm really trying to lean into, especially right now is combining the two uh of those passions together to where it's more accessible to people and also ideally uh, inspires that curiosity, inspires that appetite for uh, bigger thinking, bigger ideas that can have ideally a very positive change in people's lives. Absolutely. Do, do you have that opportunity at your job to create those things? Is that uh, something that they do there? Yeah. Um, to various levels, it's never as like, as intense or as heady as I would like it to be. Um, but it's much better than just commercial work where it's like, please buy this product. We're explaining to you this product. Um, so I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, you mentioned that you had a few things that you wanted to touch on. Um, so I was going to kind of just open the floor to, um, yeah. Um, because as we were going back and forth on uh, our discussions were mainly kind of over where definitely the contrast between like Western thought and Western philosophy uh, scrapes up against Eastern thought and Eastern philosophy. And we had some really good conversations about that. And um, I think at the time I couldn't remember like one of the first, when I was getting into Eastern philosophy and Eastern thought, uh, one of the first uh, Eureka moments or revelations I had with it that really kind of like sunk its hooks into me. And it was so long ago that uh, at the at the time I forgot it. Uh, but that idea was, which through the conversations recently popped back into my mind, was how essentially that answered that question that I brought up earlier uh, that I gave to like my camp pastor or like uh, fifth grade uh, Christian pastor, um, which, and the answer is it's uh, like being adults is no longer really like, unless you're very much materialist and you really enjoy just buying the next clothing item, whatever fits your bill, um, whether it's opportunity or a new relationship or a new car, et cetera. Um, 
And I'm curious, I think you'll check out this mostly, but I'm curious if there's anything that you would want to correct. But uh, the answer is those things, while they're good, while they're nice, while they're handy, they only unlock, they, you only think that they unlock something into you that acquiring those things uh, would unlock to you. you. You get into the process of, I will only feel happy or elated or satisfied yeah. once I obtain X, Y, or Z. When in reality, yeah. you have access to all those emotions, all of those Ooh. benefits yeah. in the here and now. Um, they're like the future, your future item doesn't exist. Your future accomplishment doesn't exist. We're in, in the Eastern line of thought. You're in the present moment. You generally have access to feeling as elated and accomplished and satisfied as you would uh, yeah. once you do attain it. And it, it goes back to the whole thing of, because we all know that uh, there's a lot of times where we've enjoyed just the act of anticipating receiving something more than we have the actual receiving of the object. Yeah, that's crazy. I actually just wrote this today. I have it out in front of me because I was finishing it up. Uh, well, it was just left on my desk. Um, if you don't mind me reading it, I, I mean, Absolutely. I just had it out. I wasn't going to, but. Please do. It. <laughs> Please do. Uh, and it's about loss. It's about, um, well, here, loss provides a call for change, an invitation to reflect on how you get to embody the aspects of you that were revealed through what you've, quote, lost. I put lost in, in quotation marks because to lose anything, it must have the quality of being mine, which it does not. This quality of mine is illusory, just as the self, the I, which is required for a mine, is also illusory. We categorize our thoughts, roles, beliefs, and form identity in them so we can feel grounded in familiarity and self-understanding. Yet there is nothing there to understand. The reality is that true self-awareness is in the pure experience of presence, not in the reinforcement and collecting of identity, which is all clutter. This clutter is much like physical objects and acquisition of material. It is useful to a point and a wonderful tool, but a terrible master. That's a quote from Alan Watts right there. When we take on the role as a victim of loss, we attach blame to the things that took those things away. We view these things we've lost as being the source of happiness or fulfillment or other feelings deemed positive, but they are not the source. They do not have the intrinsic value we believe they hold. Instead, they provide opportunities to experience what you are what you are capable of experiencing. In other words, they unlock in you what was always there to experience. They made you so aware of what is truly beautiful to you that you remembered what it was like to see the world as if everything were new, as if you were a child again, when wonder frequently pulled at your feet. This is why we can grow complacent and tired of these things that once brought us such joy. We've grown up again. Lend loss your curiosity and find that you are always the source. 
good stuff. So, yeah, in this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm going through some grieving of identities and relationships and um, things of that nature where you attach those feelings and the, you know, the happiness to the person. Um, but what I am realizing is that, you know, they, they are not the source. They don't hold happiness. They unlock it. They unlock that within you. you like you said, they unlock, they unlock it and they reveal it. They reveal what is possible. And so, I mean, it's really, it's really all your experiences there. Yeah. And, and now reframing it from it being something out there to it being within, you know? Yeah. And it, it allows you to, frankly, not just enjoy the moment, but enjoy the greater part of your life. Because if you're constantly living for these peak experiences, which mm -hmm. conversely, I think they like peak experiences should be, held in high regard and should be worked towards but uh you're never enjoying the process you're, you're never you're not enjoying your life because your entire life you're looking forward to uh the achievements and you're not yeah. actually enjoying the process leading up to the achievement which is a massive waste because then you're just living the 90 like uh you're living the 99 percent of your time just in a frenetic state trying to get to that 1% of the, of the high point of the accomplishments. Yeah. yeah. You're attached and, uh, to the outcome. Yeah. yeah. You're attached to the outcome. And while you conversely, as I, as I mentioned earlier, like that's not to say like, well then just do nothing yeah. at least in my view, because uh, then there's no real way you'd be able to learn to be present in the process. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know there's like a, this is kind of getting more into like the, the French side of things, but I know like uh the writer Eckhart Tolle, like when he first had his uh, moment of enlightenment, he spent like, I think it was like two years just like sitting on a park bench. Um, and that's like, all right, fair enough. And this may just be more of the Western philosophy jutting out of me. But uh, I think there's so much more to be learned through action than uh, through, in through inaction in this process. Uh, and then to go back to the original point, um, but if you're learning to enjoy that process of attainment where you're not just constantly frenetic, then you're at a positive state the entire time. You're not just, um, you create a fantasy in your mind of what the outcome will be. And by usually creating a fantasy in your mind, you're immediately setting your expectations very high. And it's, you're setting yourself, you're setting yourself up for not necessarily failure, but even if you do succeed the outcome, it won't be as glamorous as maybe you were expecting. It won't yeah. be as fulfilling, et cetera. Whereas if yeah. you're just enjoying the process uh, as you as you grow, as you advance towards your goal or your achievements, then all of a sudden, 100 percent of the of the process becomes something that's enjoyable, it's something that you can bring your consciousness into and bring bring more positive emotions, but allow less uh, negative emotions like anxiety, frustration, uh, et cetera. You see, you accept setbacks more generously. You have more uh, grace to yourself uh, with failures. Um, 
you have a much more healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and things are healthier on an internal and external. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it kind of makes me think of, and I, I've said this quote on my podcast before, but um, Robert Persig, um, he says, the only Zen you'll find on the top of the mountain is the Zen you take with you. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, it's just, you can, you can trade the word Zen um, and, and in its place, put contentment, peace, yeah. uh, self-esteem, self-confident, all of those things. It's like, once you get to your goal, get to where you're going, none of those things are going to be there because mm -hmm. you didn't take it there. You didn't bring yeah. it with you on your journey. Um, and that's kind of the idea of, you know, when you are so results oriented, you miss the point entirely. Yeah. You, to become uh, what is called process oriented, um, being in a more, uh, um, being in more flow states, yeah. um, being more present, um, really allowing your awareness to be here um, as opposed to, yeah, creating these realities that, uh, and these narratives and these stories that don't exist, that you will be happy, this, this narrative that I will be happy once I have a million dollars in the bank. It's like, no, you, you might have a, a better, I mean, there is research showing that, you know, a certain amount of um, income does make you relatively happier. But, um, you know, I, I, anytime somebody brings that up, I argue that it's, um, you are being, uh, you are transcending the scarcity mentality and you're moving into abundance. And so naturally, yeah. naturally you're going to have an overall increased well-being. You know? Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, with the monetary value thing, um, it's like if you live your life in this frenetic race to get more money or to accumulate more money, because as yeah. you mentioned, once I have a million in the bank, then I'll be happy. Mirroring the you can't or the zen you t you find on the mountaintop you take with you. If you're spending that entire time in this frenetic, like I need this in order to be happy. Mm -hmm. Uh, then you've wasted that entire time, even if you get that million dollars, you wasted that entire time not learning how to be happy in and of by your own merits. Um, you've traded learning how to be happy in your own skin for pushing yourself and stressing yourself out to get that million dollars in the bank. Um, and that's not to Nick's, uh, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be said for entrepreneurialism. I have a lot of respect for all of that. Uh, but it's, it's more of like, well, what's, who is more wealthier, the person who can like live happily and coherently, uh, making however much like 40 K a year or 120 K a year and just be okay with that as compared to the person who is constantly striving and digging and trying to like, uh, desperately trying to make something ha happen. If at the end of the, like say in a 10 year period, if you have someone who's just making just a standard amount of money a year and they're not frenetically, if they're living coherently with that amount of money and they're like, you know what, this is what I make. That's great. It's cool. 
and I have all these other things that I enjoy and I have no complaints about my life. They're living coherently and they can honestly uh, say that as compared to someone who is not sleeping, strung out on stimulants uh, and making serious money. I mean, it, and that taps into the whole thing of like, I remember when I was younger, uh, hearing about like business owners who are CEOs who'd have like two or three cell phones. And mm -hmm. that's back when like cell phones were seen as like a cool status symbol and not uh, digital chains essentially. Uh, thinking how, oh, like, oh, they're so important. That's so cool. They have two cell phones. And now as I'm older, I realize like, that's actually like a massive red flag. That sounds miserable if you have to own multiple mm -hmm. cellular devices because your time is so precious and so in demand. You're constantly mentally thinking about like 10 different things. You never have, uh, you very rarely have a chance to mentally detox. You're so taxed. Yeah. Um, that just sounds more and more, I mean, it's like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah. And if, don't get me wrong, conversely, as I don't even think I need to mention, but there's people who, uh, to them, that is living coherently. They have the mental capacity and they have uh, the natural hunger and the vision uh, to create something and to, sh to give it to the masses where the only way that they can do that is to be seriously in demand with their time and to be very generous with their time and very strategic mm -hmm. with their time. And that's how they live coherently. And that's great. And like, thank Thank God for those people. Uh, but I think it's easy to idolize, especially now with the whole like, sort of the grind set mm -hmm. mentality. Uh, there's very little discussion about like finding, living coherently and finding that sort of happy medium between what am I going to enjoy the process of and how can I not overexert myself or underexert myself in the long run? Yeah. Yeah. You, you're using the word coherently the word coherence, um, which is something that we've used a lot in our, you and I's discussion. Um, so I, I'd like to see how you understand coherence at, at the moment after all of yeah, our- Yeah, no, I mean, I will say, uh, I give full copyright and rights to you. You're the one who introduced that word to me, so I don't wanna like steal your word. And uh, so <laughs> my word. anything doesn't check out, let me know. Um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, say it's a much more a synonym would be uh acting out in a way that is authentic to you where you know what you need it's in line with your personal integrity it's in mm -hmm. line with what you with um the ideal of how you see yourself in a healthy way it's not acting out of ego it's not acting out of insecurity it's acting out uh, from your best self uh, and that looks different for every, for different people. It's very, um, suggestive in the sense that it's very based on the individual and where they're at and where they genuinely want to go. And I think we can both agree that the only way to handle that word in the right way is, uh, to be very, very honest and like brutally honest at times, um, uh, yet also giving yourself grace uh, and getting back to that. That kind of goes back to the conversations we were having about, uh, what was it? It was like a, a guide in like tiger hunting or this. Like, oh yeah. The uh, uh, lion tracker's guide to life. Yeah. Yeah. Boyd Barty. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's what I would say for my knee jerk reaction to 
the definition of living coherently. Okay. Do we want to expand on that? Do you, sure, the, sure. the path of not here, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. And the, and that was a, frankly a tangent from yeah. living coherently. And that's one of the things I really uh, enjoyed from conversations where, where when you realized, uh, when you realize you've done something that isn't on, isn't coherent to you, for me, at least, it's very easy for me to like beat myself up about it or not show myself grace. Where conversely, it's like, oh, this is actually a lesson learned. This is part of the part of my path, but it's uh, it's using the sense of hunting tigers, right? Uh, well, he, he lion, yeah, lion tracking. Um, yeah, lion he's tracking. not he's not hunting. He, it's uh, tracking for safari. Um, hmm. People Whoa. just seeing lions sightseeing okay um, okay so in in his um framework what he talks about is co- it's called the path of not here so um as you are uh i, I keep now i'm almost saying hunting <laughs> as you are tracking this lion as you're tracking this lion there are indicators that the lion was here that there are indicators that uh, you know, you, you see a paw print, you see um, a dead animal, you see blood or whatever else, um, lion fur. And you follow those indicators that the lion was here. Um, and then, you know, you might go off into a direction for 30 minutes, a few miles, and not see another indicator that the lion was here. Um, so that path becomes the path of not here what i was looking for this lion is not here so much like what i was looking for the uh um, satisfying job the fulfillment the um the happiness that i thought that i was having um in pursuing uh you know this thing and it is now fleeting the it doesn't not in this job i thought i wanted to be a lawyer and that's those are my goals and now i hate everything about it or whatever else um having the grace to to understand having the grace for yourself helps you understand that that path is you you simply just have to go back you have to find the last indicator that you were on you were tracking the lion you were tracking um the things that fulfill you so you will take many paths of not here. They're all over the place, especially when it comes to navigating life. Mm. Um, especially, especially if your lion is, is a vague thing. You're not sure what your lion, you're not sure what you're tracking. Yeah, you know? or it's almost like defining the lion as you're tracking it. Yeah. Hence of actually what it may be or what it is. Exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, that that's just a, a reframing of um, these paths that we take and having having grace for them as yeah. as we come to and and you know there if you are foolish if you are foolish you will stay on that path of not here and you will ignore all of it ignore every indication that what you were looking for is not on this path and you will end up becoming that lawyer or whatever whatever it is that. Um, you're tracking or you believe you're tracking. 
Yeah, but and like a, it's, a twisted self-fulfilling prophecy. In a way. Yeah, it's not going to be there. I mean, if if you are fooling yourself into thinking, you know, well, I haven't seen an indication of the the lion being on this path for over three hours, but I still I still think he's going to be at the end. Mm-hmm. I I'll I'll get a, an indication in you know the next twenty yards, yeah. and then twenty more yards, and then. 20 more yards and it just goes on and on and it's like yeah we do that a lot in a more like neuroscience way then you have like uh was it the sunken cost fallacy yeah where Mm -hmm. and then it's just like because uh you you mentioned like with the example like the the lawyer it's Mm -hmm. like man like law school does not come cheap in in time or money and so i i couldn't imagine uh the sort of honesty and very difficult conversations with yourself and others one have to take to realize, Oh wait, this is not for me in the least. Yeah. Uh, just because there's so much momentum already sunk into it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like the, the sunken cost fallacy is essentially, uh, excuse me. Um, I've already sunk this much time and resources into this endeavor. Um, I mean, it can be as basic as reading this book. I've already read a hundred, hundred pages of this book. I'm going to finish it, even though it doesn't interest me. It's like, oh, put it down, put yeah. it down. If it, if it is falling on deaf ears, stop reading the book, read something else that mm-hmm. you can actually pay attention and derive some type of uh, meaning and mm-hmm. lesson from. Um, it's much harder to do with those life decisions. It's much harder, that, but that's why it's so important to be in tune with that early. Yeah. You know, really understand sunken cost fallacies so that when you're in pre-law classes and not at, <laughs> not yeah, in dude. law school. So when you're, when you're in your, when you're in, when you're in your undergrad, you yeah. think, oh, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. I hate writing and I hate debating. Yeah. And, and some of that has to do with um, our, our needing, uh, approval mm-hmm. for things, you know, our, uh, what, what ideals, uh, what dreams are handed down to us? What do other people want for us? Yeah. And sometimes you got to tell them to shove it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or like, uh, even the really like sad sense where it's like some of the codependency where, uh, you, it, I, I don't, condone this but uh a situation where someone wants uh what others want for them more than they want what they want for them yeah and it's like man you're just that's just a a recipe for some sort of failure on varying Mm -hmm. degrees um yeah it's having that courage to be disliked yeah Yeah, that book i don't know did you end up reading that book yet i did yeah yeah so you are living your life by uh, the standard of somebody else. Yeah. You are not, li- essentially you're not living your life. You're living a life as someone else would have you live it. Yeah. yeah. And that is a recipe for um, an existential crisis. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the very least, massive At the very least. Whoever yeah. told you to live a certain way. <laughs> At the very least. At the very least. Yeah. You know, no, it's uh, which is a great book, The uh, Courage to Be Disliked. I, I mean, I don't know what you think, but oh no, that was that was really solid. Um, 
to, because that was also, I think I mentioned, it was also one of the first uh, introductions I've had to Illyrian psychology. Mm, yeah. And uh, which was a really good marriage. I think overall, of just the ideas of, um, one of those few examples where Eastern thought in its history meets Western thought in its history, and the best of both the worlds are really kind of just meshed mm-hmm. uh, into the same thing where it's very, uh, very applicable, very pragmatic, uh, but also not too. I don't think there's one time where I thought it was really like convoluted or like too new agey. Mm. Um, I, I think it was solid. Uh, well, it's also mean, really good rebuttal just to like the whole kind of Western uh, Freudian take on psychology as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that form of psychology, individual psychology, there's this emphasis on um, you start with you, you know, it's, it's a self-reflective process versus looking for um, things out there that are the causes of the effects that are going on internally, yeah. you know. So it's it's almost stoic in thinking, but it's also yeah. got this Zen um, these Zen principles at the same time. Yeah, because that's even like uh, like the I don't think he like referred to himself as a guru, but like as like the the teacher in the book was saying is that he's a really big fan of Socrates and the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he really did. He ever really mention any sort of Eastern thinkers? No, I don't like it's think definitely so. it's definitely influenced though by like yeah. Eastern. Yeah, okay, but it wasn't barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I think the the author is. I'm not sure where the author's from, but yeah, I remember his name is very Japanese. Yeah, it's like a Chiro. I think, yeah, something. I can't remember his name honestly. As a small side tangent, out of curiosity, have you checked out uh, any of the Adam Curtis documentaries he mentions? No, not yet. Not yet. I've been uh, busy. I've been a uh, so w- with work. Um, I've had sick employees and. Mm. Um, it's just been me and one other person up there and I haven't had my day off like I usually do. So I'm behind on a lot of stuff currently. <laughs> yeah, I will mention uh, Century of the Self, uh, the documentary by Adam Curtis. It's free on YouTube, uh, but does a really good job of also challenging, um, of highlighting the influence that Freud had on America, mm, uh, not yeah. just through psychology, but also through uh, Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, uh, he was essentially the first marketer who was able to shift people mm-hmm. from buying uh, buying goods for just for their like quality or durability as more of a personal statement on who they were. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it's no longer oh buy this glove or buy this uh, jacket. It's it lasts a very long time. It's like oh only a certain kind of people will buy this jacket mm-hmm. or only a High certain society. kind of people will buy this perfume or cologne. Uh, and his nephew is using Freudian uh, psychology uh, into his marketing uh, game. Then he also, he later used it for propaganda for World War II, et cetera. Uh, and so he highlights how Freudian thought infiltrated not just uh, American psychology, but American culture, and also really just challenges uh, and assesses and asks the viewer, like, is this really a good thing? Yeah. Because Freud's... Uh, Freud's take and his view on humanity was very, very uh, cynical and dark, uh, 
I think it's fair to say probably nihilistic. Hmm. Uh, he did not have the most uh, cheery view of uh, of the world. Um, he thought that the one of his big I remember, and I'll end with this, one of his big arguments with uh, his student Carl Jung was that uh, Freud believed that uh, the human narrative for the individual, the human story is that of the, uh, uh, what is it? Is it King Oedipus, the Oedipal, Oedipus complex? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what he was claiming to be like the, the human story and the human experience was ultimately tragedy. While Jung pushed back and was like, no, it's, it's the story of the hero. It's a story of someone who, and Jung's thought of the story of the hero went on to be adopted by Joseph Campbell uh, for the hero's journey. And so Jung's pushback was, no, it's someone who transcends, grows, dies to his past self, um, attempts or attempts to bring some sort of control of some sort of chaotic environment or situation and then brings the rewards back to the community. And so that's all I'll just say, just the highlights, and this is just one large round tangent back to uh, the many cracks that Western uh, psychology for sure has. And that's what I think I really enjoyed about The Courage of Be Disliked is because it also highlighted the, the faults and the back, the back doors and the weaknesses of those ideas. Because yeah. they're deeply ingrained in our culture for sure. Oh yeah. Well, and, and even what he talks about with uh, like trauma and mm-hmm. like this whole um, ideological approach versus teleological approach. I mean, it shifts the conversation and just, it shifts yeah. how we describe our experience, um, yeah. which I think is powerful. Um, yeah. And it, it dovetails nicely with the same idea of uh, you have everything you need right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. You have everything you need to transcend your addiction or transcend um, your bad habits. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, there's there's also this um, idea that you are the only one that can heal yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're the only one. I mean, yeah. aside aside from obviously, um, you know, gunshot or like physical. Uh, trauma to the head or something. I mean, yeah. there's there's yeah, obviously the, like modern the, medicine. Yeah, the, the exceptions <laughs> prove the rule. <laughs> but as far as um, what's going on internally, it is you know you are the only one that can heal yourself, and that's not to say that you don't go, you shouldn't go to therapy, um, but that is to say is that you are the one that has to choose that. Yeah. And then you are the one that has to choose to implement what you learn there. Maybe yeah. Yeah. You have to it, choose to open up. Yeah. And I, I will say as well, I'm still, despite the flaws that I see in it, a very big fan of uh, specifically, because I think I mentioned to you, because I've heard so many horror stories about various people who went to people who claim to be therapists, mm-hmm. uh, which frankly, I find disgusting. The only branch of therapy I'll, the only banner of therapy I'll wave is uh, restoration therapy founded by Terry Hargrave, I believe. Okay. And like, I have, I have gained a lot by engaging with a therapeutic practice. And I think it's one of the best investments I've ever had in my life, but ultimately it goes back to, and I think there's a lot to be gained from it. Ultimately it goes back to the original point where it's, 
whether you know your traumatic history or not, or whether you uh, have spent many hours and have been very intentional and honest with someone you trust, um, it ultimately ends up back to you. You're the sole, you're the sole person responsible for your own pain, your own trauma, and how mm -hmm. you're going to act in its lights and in its uh, presence in you, or how you're going to act knowing what is true about you and knowing that the past is essentially dead and gone and right now in the action you're about to take or not take is where everything really kind of lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it is a denying of, I am going to make this choice and this is why I make these choices because of this thing that happened to me in my past and holding yourself accountable to, you know, you do have a choice. You are choosing this and you are yeah. in that teleological approach to these things. Um, it is, uh, you are pointing at that experience in your past to justify the action, to explain mm -hmm. away the action versus um, accepting that it is simply just cause and effect. Yeah, I have Did a question you for you on that matter too. Um, and this is more of kind of feeling out where you're at. I, I, I think I know your answer, but I'm still curious uh, your thoughts on it in the course of, on the topic of therapy and trauma. Um, so say you have someone who is acting in a way that uh, they claim to be incoherent. Uh, they don't like the fact that they do it. Let's say, for example, they drink too much. Uh, mm -hmm and they have a hard time quitting alcohol, uh, and they don't know why. Uh, they have no idea why they do it, but they do know that they don't enjoy it, they wanna stop, but they just can't seem to. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm asking in this hypothetical question is, do you see value in a person through talk therapy, or good therapy, mm -hmm. uh, getting to the root and understanding why they're doing or even just the attempt of understanding why they're doing something that they can't seem to understand. Um, yeah, I, okay. So the question is, do I see a benefit from doing talk therapy to help remedy alcoholism? Or not even necessarily remedy, but just to get to a better point of understanding. Cause we all know people who, um, it's like we were mentioning earlier, we know people who have done that sort of work and got to the reason why, or they know why they're doing things they don't enjoy doing or what wish they could stop doing. Yeah. But yet they continue to anyway. Yeah. Um, well, you, so, so what comes to my mind, um, is it depends. Um, you, you, you mentioned, um, good, a good therapist, you emphasize, uh, or rephrased you said therapy talk therapy yeah. but a good talk therapist you know yeah, um, yeah. and I, I say that i haven't experienced it but i've heard many secondhand stories of yeah. horror stories and i think we all know someone who has had a terrible time in the therapy session yeah oh yeah i'm well the part of the issue um or i i'm, I'm i won't say issue but part of uh what comes up is there's potentially the, the therapy, the therapist is fragmented as well. They might even be on the same level of consciousness where they use, they use substances to, to escape, you know, mm -hmm. 
Um, and they're, I mean, I know I, I've met plenty of, I mean, I was a psychology student. I've met plenty of other students who wanted to go into psychology and you begin to discover now y'all all have these conversations. I mean, it's, you joke around, but there's truth to it that, um, you go into psychology to figure out what's wrong with you. you know? yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some truth to it, uh, yeah. for, a, for a lot of individuals and, uh, you know, it's what, but what comes to my mind is what, uh, David R. Hawkins talks about. Um, cause he, he talks about addiction. He talks about alcoholism. Um, and he brings up, uh, the success of AA. Um, mm -hmm. and, this really it's a the the surrender of that to a higher power something greater than you a higher power um and he talks about how aa calibrates at a higher that like the group itself the organization calibrates mm. at a higher level of consciousness um and so i i believe that if you are interacting um with uh something uh, like a, a therapist or a group or a teacher or any of those things that are on a higher level of consciousness mm. who will love you unconditionally, who will help you surrender, then you will grow. You will, you will yeah, transcend yeah. those levels of consciousness. Yeah. You mentioned like with, uh, a therapist maybe on the same level of conscious as his patients and like the quote with all the, the psychology students. Um, it's like, uh, you can't, I'm trying uh, to solve the problem. Yeah. That, same level of consciousness. It's the same place for, or, uh, it was in the context of that wraps it up pretty much. It's the context yeah. of the guy. A teacher can't expect his students to become something that the, that the teacher is not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that, and that same line of thing. And so when you have when you have those corporate settings, whether it's at, in a group setting um, or whether it is uh, on a one on one, there has to be some sort of invitation to transcendence. There has to be some sort of yeah. uh, respect for both parties, but also like, hey, we're going in this direction the invitation is open you're free to join you're free to not hmm. uh, but if if that isn't already set then you're just gonna be spinning your wheels and most likely you're gonna be getting hurt by being vulnerable to people who frankly don't deserve it being hurt by people who frankly don't deserve is that what um, you're being or hurt. Yeah, by, or hurt by being vulnerable to people oh. who do not know how to handle that vulnerability yeah. And, you know, I think also, um, eventually, cause, cause you know, my, my thing, I, I enjoy being vulnerable. I mean, sure. It opens me up to, um, pain opens yeah. me up to, um, emotional attack or rejection and all of these different things. But, um, I think that at a higher level of consciousness, vulnerability is an extension of authenticity. Yeah. Right? You are yeah. being authentic. And yeah. so you don't to have be... to, you don't have to like, for me, I know that like there are times where I mentally have to change gears in order to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
the more the more higher consciousness is you're so you've leaned into the behavior of you've developed the courage to be disliked mm-hmm. that you're no longer mentally thinking am i being vulnerable or am i not you're just being yourself and the chips yeah. are falling where they may yeah well you know it it's a shift from viewing it as um really viewing it as vulnerability and view and instead viewing it as like i said authenticity i i uh really this uh because there's that negative connotation with uh, vulnerability it it presupposes that someone's going to attack you and you have something yeah exactly it 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 assumes fear yeah versus um courage in your authenticity and yeah and knowing that embodying it um, yeah and, and more of a, a purity of who you are yeah instead of this whole whole sort of like should i be defensive or should i be vulnerable it's yeah. it's it's laced with combative uh and like violent terms really yeah exactly so um on the subject of uh like alcoholism and stuff though too um there are the this there's this idea that David R. Hawkins also talks about is like these things that we grow addicted to. We're not we're not addicted to those things. Mm-hmm. We're not addicted to alcohol. We're not addicted to um, you know pornography or whatever else drugs. Um, we're addicted to the state of consciousness that they allow us to experience mm-hmm. because they will mute lower levels of consciousness and make us feel that we are on this higher level of consciousness. It'll make us feel euphoria or yet joy, this ecstasy. And, um, you know, it's, and and bringing like, uh, like in drinking, like letting down your walls, your inhibitions and, um, it's liquid courage. That's what we call it. It's like, Oh, there's all these, these names and stuff that, um, are these indicators that they bring us into these higher states of consciousness, but they're, they're not actually raising us to yeah. them. We're not transcending anything. What we're yeah. doing is it's quieting the anger or the whatever else until yeah. it doesn't anymore. Yeah, the, the rays of consciousness that comes from those vices, it's never sustainable. Mm, yeah. There's, there's a quote from uh, Peter Crone, uh, uh, when he's when he's framing it, when he's talking about addiction, he says, uh, uh, "You can't get enough of anything that almost works." Yeah, yeah. And all of those things almost work. They they raise you to that level of consciousness. They um, almost make all the pain go away. Almost, almost. But you cannot get enough of it. You cannot get enough yeah. of it to make it completely go away and to completely yeah. transcend those levels of consciousness to. Um, always experience euphoria. Yeah. And so you need another hit. You need another hit of whatever it is so that you can feel yeah. it again until you don't. Yeah. And you know? usually that hit is always some degree more than the previous mm-hmm. hits. Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing yeah, that like was that one that really opened, opened my eyes, or it was a, a good reframing uh, when it comes to. Uh, like serious drug abuse, which I have no firsthand experience, but it's like, uh, I remember uh, someone in California was mentioning this where, uh, 
It's like, no, the people you see who are like just strung out on the side of the streets, from their perspective, they're having a phenomenal time. They're probably, <laughs> frankly, feeling better on some level than you or I ever will feel. And yeah. that's why they're there. Uh, because that has become the modus operandi for their lives. Because it, it, it not only... Uh, I'm now remembering uh, a book. You're familiar with the Gabor Mate, right? What'd you say? Are you what familiar with uh, the writer Gabor Mate? Um, what did he write? He wrote uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and uh, I'm blanking on it. Uh, when the Body Says No. Uh, I don't think so. No. I'd highly recommend either of those. Uh, in the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is all about addiction. And he goes on about how uh, a lot of... He was uh, essentially like, it wasn't pilot of care, but essentially became Matt's because he was uh, the doctor of this, uh, one of the worst cities in Canada that was known for just massive amounts of opioid uses. And uh, when it came to his patients who were uh, hooked on some of the most strong illegal drugs, he just kind of resigned, resigned to the reality, to what he seemed to be the reality that uh the majority of his patients, he would be attending their funerals. And that's mm. pretty much ha what happens. Uh, but him also having a very strong psychological bent and just being a really great mind, um, he realized that a lot of addiction stems from uh, past trauma and becomes a, this is a large tangent, I'm sorry. But uh, okay. that addiction becomes a way to uh, address that trauma. That is a very Western way of thinking of it, but it also inlines because that's the that's the whole thing. When you're raising your, even in the Eastern sense, when you're raising your conscience, when you're in the present moment, when you're in your body and your all your faculties are with you, that trauma isn't really on your mind. The past isn't on your mind if you're truly in the present. Yeah. Uh, much less are going to take action to uh, to sedate. Uh, that sort of like mild motor of trauma that's going in on you. Yeah. Well, and the, 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 it also requires you to accept that narrative that yes. I am the victim and am now changed by it, by that yeah. experience. Yeah. And even one of the biggest things that I had against, I still think it's a great book on addiction, but what yeah. I had against is that it's uh, the writer, and you can even if you just Google him, you can even see yeah, yeah. the way he looks. He looks very depressed, because mm, uh, he's really like bought hook, line, and sinker. The fact that, that like once you're it, once you combine serious childhood trauma and hardcore drugs, like it's a very short while until you're just gone. Um, and that's a very, I may be very naive in making this point, but I think that's still a very limiting belief. Yeah, where you're not exploring all options available. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with, with hard drug use. Yeah. I can see how, um, there being this first domino. I mean, that, that, that is this slippery slope of, um, a needing to escape and then yeah. finding something that works seems to work so well. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I said, until until it doesn't, there's the yeah. point of diminishing returns where you know yeah. there's nothing there's nothing like that first high. Um, yeah. So, but when it comes to being able to change, um, I think that is um, 
always within our ability to yeah. change. Yeah. Um, and there's there, I mean, depending on the drug, um, there's treatment options for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I, I think it's, um, I think Dave Rabin, um, is exploring like ketamine use in the mm, treatment yeah. of, uh, you know, drug addicts. And, and it's yeah. not like he's pumping them with ketamine. He's, um, helping them reframe their stories with, uh, yeah. you know, this micro dosing of ketamine. And yeah, I know it's also really big, like a very big movement in, uh, LA, yeah. uh, where they're really kind of on the forefront and really trying to get that. I would say it's much more in the public sphere, in the medical sphere than, uh, like I would say most psychedelics are as of right now for medicinal yeah. use. I know Tim Ferriss is, seemingly hell-bent on getting psychedelics to the same area that ketamine is, but it's it's good to see that there's other options being explored, both medicinally yeah. and also therapeutically. But I think that that was a whole side tangent that I think goes back to the fact that there's a, the original point, which is those addictions, um, they're all there just to give the user the taste of the relief of higher consciousness, the relief mm. of, frankly, surrendering those things that they don't have, that they haven't, that they have yet to uh, intentionally let go of. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, um, not, I mean, it, it wasn't too much of a tangent. I mean, that's totally relevant to what we're talking about. There's this um, thing that I've been talking about with um, my roommate uh, recently, and it is, where do you go when you are wounded? where do you go you know and it um people some people have a tendency to escape um they can't they can't deal with the reality of the wound um so they use things to um distract them they use things to yeah. take them away from reality um so there are just these different coping mechanisms and we're all just doing our best, right? Mm -hmm. We're all doing our best to um, survive. And mm -hmm. um, as I was saying is like you, what is required for that experience is you have to accept that narrative that I have been harmed. I like, I am wounded and I will mm -hmm. forever be changed by this. And yeah. I cannot, I cannot experience this any longer i i yeah. must or or the moon just adds to an already built negative narrative yeah where it's like oh i always knew it end up this way or i this is just it's just that sort of like sub almost subconscious uh negative narrative momentum and it's just yeah. fuel to the fuel to that fire yeah well it's it's like you can take two individuals who have been through practically identical situations and have experienced that uh, event and one will not accept the narrative that it has any influence or, or any uh, indication of my worth, my self-worth uh, yeah. has no it, indication. It, of, it doesn't define that. Yeah. It, it does not change my trajectory. Um, yeah. And then the other one, the, the another person can, um, you know, this kind of gets into the, uh, the where how they triangulate, you know, with the, this idea that you and I have talked about of yeah. um, this 
triangulation model framework of consciousness. And it depends on so many things. And yeah. um, Do you remember that model much? Yeah. Well, it's uh, the three axes. One is level of consciousness. The other is physical location. um, And the other is knowledge, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's like uh, your understanding, yeah, your knowledge, what you know, um, and yeah, level of consciousness. And I say position. Um, so, but but it like including time in time, your position in time and your position yeah. in space. So it's this for for those of you listening, it's kind of a lot to explain. But um, as I think if, the example of Einstein. And yeah, I, I was a good example. Yeah, the, so so it's as if you are triangulating um, yourself on a on you know, on Earth. You know, you have your latitude, longitude, and altitude. You know, you use those things to understand where you are. Um, now, in this model, uh, I, I like I said, like he was saying, it's like I like to use the um, example of Einstein. Um, so it it required Einstein to be in the back uh, of that car um, at, at that moment, it required him to know what he knows about um, physics and um, I mean, just his knowledge in general and then and his imagination for another thing, but it also required his level of consciousness. So in other words, that level, if, if he were on the level of, um, I don't know, jealousy or contempt with, uh, life and um, or or was um, hung up on his ex or whatever else or he he can't get off Instagram or he that didn't publish my work how dare yeah. they <laughs> don't they know who they're dealing with yeah he would not have been able to look back and pose the question what would it be like for me to ride on a beam of light and then set out on you know, much of his life's work. Um, so it requires us to um, really promote each of those. I mean, obviously your position is going to change. Um, then what you know, uh, what you have a lot of control over, what you, what are you learning about? What are you pursuing? What, a, what a, uh, practices are you uh, like, you know, are you becoming an engineer or carpenter or, uh, whatever else, because you're going to see the world differently depending on what you know. Um, and then that level of consciousness, which is probably the hardest to actually change. Um, but those individuals, getting back to that point of um, you will have two individuals who will go through the same experience, the, uh, the same-ish, uh, none of them are identical, obviously, but the same type of experience. And one will accept that narrative that this has something to do with my worth and changes my trajectory and I am the victim of this thing and the other will not accept that, will not make that agreement that this is part of who I am and not let it change their trajectory or decide decide their worth. Um, and it And it largely depends on, yeah, their 
their those level that where they're at consciously what level of consciousness are they at um so yeah wasn't that if, even one of the points that uh victor franklin made the man search for meaning where it was like mm-hmm. when he was realizing the um one of the key attributes that led led a holocaust inmate to survival uh was their ability to retain their sense of self and what they enjoyed doing in the world, even in the most hellish circumstances, like Victor Frankl himself, Mm -hmm. he knew that he enjoyed uh, psychotherapy. And so in the camp, in like the pit of hell, he's talking with other camp 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 members and he's Mm -hmm. uh, helping them out with their stories. And like, I think he mentions like a, a baker where he's like, I'm baking what little I can here with what little scraps I have. And when I get out, can't wait to bake even more large amounts and quantities of bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just, it's that mental fortitude of, and I don't know how well this parallels with, I think it does, it, in the sense of levels of consciousness, it parallels with the triangulation idea, but that mental fortitude to, I guess better in the case of the two uh, kids or people, the mental fortitude to stay rested and grounded in what you know to be true about yourself and to not let that sway in a bunch of external reactions and factors that are very tempting to make you see yourself in a negative light. Yeah. Well, you know, and the, a lot of what Viktor Frankl talks about, I mean, his school of logotherapy, I mean, it's surrounding meaning. Mm-hmm. Man's search for meaning. I mean, it's all about meaning. And mm-hmm. um, what he describes is, is, you know, we give meaning to things. Mm-hmm. And so what can happen in the example of those two individuals going through the same type of experience is one is deriving meaning from that experience, mm. seeing seeing I've experienced this, that means I am worthless, or that means that um, I, like I'm not worth loving, or all of there's so yeah. many things that can be derived from that experience. But the other individual might be inserting meaning into it. Yeah, you know this this um, you know like uh, as you grow up and you have. Uh, there's the example of the two sons who have an abusive drunk father and um, one of them grows up to be an alcoholic and the same kind of, you know, dad. Mm-hmm. And the other one swears, promises to never do that. And yeah. so one of them de- derived meaning, derived the meaning that I am worthless and I will, and I resent my father and I am going to take that out on and it. Not, it's not consciously I'm going to take this out on yeah. other people, but um, it is, um, you, you're, they're deriving this yeah. from I'm going to subconsciously carry on the bad habits and behaviors that I consciously yeah. hate. Yeah. Versus the other individual who is like, this is an exhibit uh, uh, that my father is exhibiting behavior that I will never exhibit. Yeah. What do you think uh, makes that change in between the two? Because, like, obviously, the one who's taking the more the uh, the higher path 
is clearly at a point of higher consciousness. What do you think is like the mental shifts that's going on there? Well, at a young age, um, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, yeah. uh, we, I don't know, we, at a young age, we all see the world very differently. Yeah. Um, and it's like, which one is maintaining that uh, innocence? Yeah. Which one is maintaining um, the, that wonder and curiosity and which one is being muted by his experiences, uh, his or her experiences with um, abuse? And um, honestly, I, I'm not going to say I have the answer. So, but when it comes I don't to... I don't <laughs> yeah. When it comes to um thinking okay so here's here's the thing about these levels of consciousness uh that they are it's not necessarily um higher or lower in the sense that superior and inferior yeah. uh is is there's not a hierarchy there is uh, a scale and it is useful to describe it as higher levels and lower levels mm. um as far as what is right and what is wrong is a is a construction of mm. Uh, this map, right? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I would say is um, shifting from that being a bad way a, or an, a the wrong way to go about it. Um, what the truth is, is they did exactly what they needed to do to survive. But then at some point, um, they stopped doing what they needed to. Well, they, they, they believed that that war is not over. They, they kept, they, they persisted that the war of childhood is not over. And so they are still at war in their mind. And those childhood wounds are, you know, at, at odds with the rest of the psyche and, and so to um, have that grace, you know, we talked about grace earlier, to have that grace for um, what I would call the loyal soldier, the one that is coming in and protecting the child um, in the psyche uh, and inviting uh, him to come home from war, mm. him or her to come home from war and having complete reverence for um, what I had to do to survive, what the what that loyal soldier had to do to protect the rest of the psyche. Mm. And that was potentially to push away a lot of other people. That was, um, I mean, I, there's, there's so many examples that mm. uh, we could talk about. But the point being, um, you know, you're not going to, get any better unless you until you acknowledge and hold take yourself or uh hold yourself accountable for the choices that we're making now yeah yeah it, it all it all goes back to and stems from the amount of integrity and honesty that the person is willing to have and open themselves up to mm -hmm. yeah and that's definitely part of it yeah um and i mean it requires abundant grace. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and um, that's a difficult one <laughs> yeah. for, for people to do too. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very hard. I mean, cause it, 
that it requires um, this unconditional love that you uh, you must have for yourself to have that kind of grace mm. for yourself. And letting go of that narrative um, about your self-worth um, and all of that resentment for after years and years of insisting that yeah is, of that negative momentum that's just compounding yeah yeah and, it goes back to like the whole sort of it's like a very negative sense of uh we were talking about earlier which uh something costs fallacy where yeah. it's like you're you're used to and accustomed in a really sick and twisted way uh your negative mindsets and your bad behaviors and actions and habits they end up serving you in some sort of they end up serving you mm -hmm. in a way where it keeps you into that cycle of uh negativity the earlier things we mentioned yep. but uh it has that momentum and not only do you identify with it, but you become comfortable with it. It gives you a sense of self-importance. The entire idea of the victim mentality is that now yeah. it's a status for you to have. And you're probably uh, getting a good amount of self-pity, both from yourself and others. And so mm -hmm. it's not like it's so pernicious that it's not even you're just drowning in all these negative things and the faults of your own self irresponsibility but you're also getting these little like dirty highs as well along the way that's assist you in keeping you there yeah. uh, your ego will probably like create or continue to create this grand negative narrative around whatever bad habits or behaviors that you're nursing and growing and that just adds more and more to the whole momentum of it. I think that was like the one knee-jerk reaction answer I had to the question of the two, where it's like, I don't know like what the, the two people who are, grew up in the same environment but have starkly different lives, where it's, I don't know like what sort of like magical switch or what have you was turned on the other and not, turned on the one and not in the other. But... I do know it's like those things, those narratives and those habits of being able to, of being able to, what's that how you said, like uh, inject meaning into yourself, essentially? Well, insert meaning into insert your experiences. It. Into your experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of deriving them. Yeah, from external yeah. experiences. Yeah, having that sort of, because that's really, that's a developed art and skill in its own way. Because mm -hmm. I think we can both agree that having the external world define your meaning, I would argue mm -hmm. is by and large, like the default, the defaults. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. And it, well, it's part of our framework yeah. as we grow up. Yeah. You know, it's, it is that commonly, like you see it um in adults you see it um, yeah well in in church services and all of these different um conversations that um purpose is out there some like you will find it you will find your purpose and meaning and but we give things meaning mm -hmm. you know it, to me it's like 
it's like uh, I, I have a friend who told me one time that we named everything and then we forgot we did it. Mm, yeah. And um, so, it, and, and we were talking about something completely different, but it is this idea that, you know, those, the tree didn't come up to me and say, I'm a tree. Yeah. I gave it a name. We gave it a name. Maybe not. I didn't, I didn't give it a name, but we gave it a name and then we dissected it and we um, found out that, you know, it does all of these things so that it can photosynthesize um, solar, uh, like these photons coming from the sun, all of this stuff. And it's like, um, yeah, you are, you are giving those things. You are making those observations. You are, um, you kind of like what we talked about is like uh, Alan Watts, Alan Watts talks about, a, um, you know, we, we cut the can in half and yeah. we say, oh, it's made up of two parts. It's like, well, yeah, yeah you cut it into two yeah. parts. Yeah. Um, and so, and so it's like in those examples, you can see pretty straightforward that you are, you know, inserting meaning in all those things. You are, you are not, yeah. that like doesn't have, uh, it's not intrinsically made of two parts. It's not yeah. intrinsically a tree. It is intrinsically what it is. Um, mm. You are giving it meaning. You are giving it yeah. these, making these observations. And so, um, you know, in the same way, um, that's what, that's what we get to do with our experiences. That's what yeah, we and our narratives. And I think in yeah. back to the context of the two, uh, people, and of course, like this overlaps, like what I'm about to say may overlap with childhood development, which I know very little about, but I think the, at the core of the two, these two different narratives that come from the same spot. I think one of the core key differences is the ability of one to develop and get momentum in the area of injecting meaning into himself mm -hmm. and to the world as compared to the opposite of letting the world dictate, dictate what is meaningful about the world itself and also you. Where it's well, that, that external uh, injection or insertion of meaning and validation, et cetera. Yeah. Well, you know, with with the example of the two, the two children um, living in the same household, having the uh, same father or, or mother, or um, the what what I would say uh, is the, the difference lies in their experiences outside of that their experiences because if it if it is this triangulation um it depend their their level of consciousness is as such a young kid is based in their experiences yeah and if um one is uh constantly taking risks and coming out on top and then also failing but getting up anyway um and in academia or sports or whatever else that one is developing a resilience that the other one might not be developing, mm. you know? So there, there's situ there's examples like, or, uh, when it, when it comes to those two, I, I would say it relies on their experiences mm. outside of the home. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, I mean, in other words, it really has to do with how they triangulate. 
Yeah. <laughs> who they are and create themselves to be outside of this, like mutually assured. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the, the one that uh, will not derive that meaning from uh, the, the experiences with an abusive parent um, might have developed self-worth from something else versus the other one having not developed that self-worth from something else. Or, I mean, there's, yeah, there, there's an endless <clears throat> amount of developmental um, experiences, uh, catalyzing experiences, the seeds of, uh, yeah, resilience and uh, self-confidence and authenticity and all of these things, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the key. That's the key, I think. <laughs> we got it. We got the answer. Yeah. Yeah, but it, and so I guess that also goes into shifting. I think we should also mention this a bit one time you're having coffee, but it's how can how can we encourage that sort of mentality in others? How can we invite others if they're willing into a reality where those where that momentum is taking place, mm-hmm. where momentum either is beginning or is growing of how can I have, how can I inject meaning into the world from me as I see it mm-hmm. from obviously always from a place of uh, truth and authenticity and uh, self-reflection instead of as compared to how can I stop taking meaning from the external world as it's like punching me down, et cetera, et cetera, where I'm only focusing on the negative aspects of the external world and how I think they define me or how yeah. my, how do you do the lens of my insecurities or uh, past trauma, et cetera? Um, how can, how can we encourage and invite people to shift gears into the former mindset? Yeah. Yeah. The, <clears throat> the, I will reiterate again that uh, th- this is, there, there's no right, there's no wrong, you know, so for one thing, for one thing, um, I am a firm believer in I cannot teach anyone anything, I can only make them think. This is that's, you know, what Socrates talks about He's he is not trying to change people. And so yeah. would you this, say that you could encourage someone? Or discourage someone. You can invite them into something. Yeah. You can discourage it. But at the same time, at the same time, um, what is most likely to help someone change is embodying it yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, and so when somebody gets a taste of authenticity, of somebody else being authentic and somebody else being coherent and walking in wholeness, they want that they yeah. are they have a taste of it it is we are all drawn to it yeah i firmly believe that we are we are all drawn to it that is something that we are attracted to yeah absolutely and um with with most people most most people are in a state of fragmentation most people are in a state of incoherence and it's not their fault and it's not necessarily wrong. It's just 
most people, if they're in that state, they're also going to be attracted to coherence. They're going to be attracted to wholeness and they just need to be exposed to it. And like I said, it starts with yourself. And when it comes to other people, uh, there's that saying that the teacher will present itself when the student is ready. Yeah. You know, most people, most people don't want to let go of their limitations. Yeah. You know, we, we, we talked a little bit about that is like, um, you, uh, as long as you fight for your limitations, yeah. you get to keep them. Yeah. And, Absolutely. um, when it, when it comes to, uh, you know, you you talked about a, a little bit about um, the individual where they get you know comfortable being so uh, resentful or whatever else, and, and yeah, and the idea. Watch this. This is this is this is it. This is the problem. Is we've grown so familiar with this, mm-hmm. with with the identity. We love certainty. Mm-hmm. And the funny part of it is that the nature of things is uncertain. Yeah. Now. Yeah. There's only illusion of certainty. Yeah. And now on the other side, on the other side of change, on the other side of um, dismantling who I believe I am. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what is on the other side. There is uncertainty there. There's yeah. no familiarity. I don't know what I get to be without my limitations yeah yeah and that's where i guess i've always had a hard time with the phrase like oh the reason why you can't change is because you're afraid of success Mm. but like really in that light that's correct yeah because past that other side where you're grown comfortable uh being fragmented Mm -hmm. um the idea of of changing or of getting to a place that's better or maybe even better. I know we have, (laughs) it's okay. But uh, getting to a place of higher consciousness, that's frankly terrifying because it requires you to let go of a lot of things that Mm -hmm. you probably most likely wouldn't, uh, wouldn't enjoy letting go of. Uh, And there was like a, I can't remember if it was Tony Robbins original quote, if you stole it from someone, but uh, it is no one will change until the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of changing. Mm. Which is a very like logical, like the economics of personal development. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it still it still checks out though, and it's a testament to how uh, complacent we get with certainty and how much that's in its own way kind of become yeah. uh, a serious comfort. I got, I got one for you. Okay. Um, it is, is from our, is from our pal prof uh, years ago. He said, he said, uh, that pain and beauty are intimately connected. Yeah, no, I, and they are the only things that change us. Yeah. Uh, dude, uh, <laughs> Of course, you pull that one out of the. <laughs> well, no, no, well, watch this. This. I don't know, this... I, I agree with you. He uh, holds on to the thought. Please, please. Yeah, go ahead. But uh, like in 2014, like one of the first questions I asked him was like, 
I hear you're pretty wise. <laughs> How about this? And I was like, yeah, like, what do you think makes a person wise? And he was like, dude, wisdom at the end of the day, it's like pain and beauty and how much someone has experienced of both. I was like, oh. was not expecting that. <laughs> what you're saying, I'm sorry. Well, okay, so um, when you when you when it's broken down, when it's thought through, um, at least this is where this is where I've taken it. Pain, so pain and beauty being intimately connected, locked inside mm-hmm. the experience of pain is beauty. Locked mm-hmm. inside the experience of beauty is pain. And Jason Silva talks about this in um, one of his like shots of all videos where, ah, oh, what's it called? Um, it's like the existential bummer or something like that mm-hmm. is the video. And he talks about how, you know, that's why, that's why when we love something, we are simultaneously filled with melancholy mm-hmm. because it's transient. It'll, the, we, we fear losing this person yeah, or, or, or whatever else. And, and, you know, uh, I use, I use the example of, uh, back to back to the you know alcoholic father, um, who, you know, s- upon seeing his firstborn child, that experience is sometimes beautiful enough for him to never pick up a bottle ever again, never touch another drop. Yeah. But locked inside that experience of beauty is also the pain that my child might grow up with an alcoholic father yeah. or a, an absent father or a dead father. Thanks to his yeah. habits. Or the, the pain of uh, this child may die. Yeah. And that may be an invitation to go back into his previous uh, pre beauty behaviors yeah. with even more fervor. Yeah. And when it comes to change, you know, people, people will seek it out eventually and um i and personally i believe a lot of people like so there's the the two ideas of um people can change and people can't can't change so they're they're opposing obviously or or uh so they're yeah they're they're kind of opposing but i insist that the change people inevitably change um whether it is um by their own intention uh, and by their own design is entirely up to them. You know, they they will change. They are going to change, but it, but circumstances might be acting on them to change. Um, you know, they, and it, and it might seem like they don't change. Maybe it's a bitter person and they continue, they continue to be bitter. It's like, but are that they're probably growing more and more bitter. I mean, that's a change yeah. in degree of bitterness, you know? Yeah, there's, um, a good, there's a good quote, which I've been chewing on, which is you either get better or bitter. Oh, hmm. Who says that? Do we know? Um, you should Google it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to know where that thought comes from. You know, I it's like... Not have, I do not have the sources. I did not... Yeah. Cite your sources. Come on, Uh, but but you know sometimes sometimes when uh, uh, quotes come about or we see something out there, um, it's all good and well. But you know what is it grounded in? um, Is my thinking? You know what is what is that thought grounded in? Because I can Mm. say some random shit, 
and somebody find it profound, but it actually not really represent anything profound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not that that wasn't profound. I just yeah. was curious. Yeah. Very profound. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could quote me on that. It'd <laughs> uh, uh, be a little meme floating of, around. That reminds me of another funny, not to sidetrack this, but uh, there's this quote by, uh, here we go, similar to saying something profound, but it not really being profound. This is by Deleuze. Or, yeah, Deleuze, the French philosopher. Discussion is just an exercise in narcissism where everyone takes turns showing off. Very quickly, you no longer have any idea of what is being discussed. discussed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, I find myself in conversations where um, used to, I would try to say something to sound profound, you know? Yeah. Uh, I would try I, because I needed the validation that I am uh, an old soul or yeah. have a wisdom or whatever else. And it's like, I'm now these days I'm in this position of, you know, say when it's coherent to say something, yeah. say, I too have totally stopped <laughs> <saying for> <laughs> or trying to go for a certain young philosophical persona i too have dropped that <laughs> yeah it's it's tough I mean, I mean like when it's an addiction i mean you you yeah. uh when you have a i don't know an inclination to say something and uh, inside a reaction from somebody yeah it's it's it feels good and then pretty yeah. soon pretty soon you just say stuff that is really just bs <laughs> and yeah, you're just you're just going for that feedback loop of yeah i want to be seen as profound so i better be saying something profound and people would be better reacting as one would to something yeah. that is profound exactly and, and it's no longer like you, you no longer have it's no longer a love for meaning or what's being said it's just this uh perpetuation of an ego yeah well it, about not having an ego yeah, it's it's the forming of the identity in uh, being profound versus yeah. you know like what what I want to do is help people shift perspective yeah. and if I am constantly just word vomiting on people all yeah. the time instead of um, listening and paying attention to the needs mm -hmm. and of of the moment um, yeah like don't get me wrong sometimes I get out there and you know end up lecturing somebody or. Yeah whatever else, but it's like, oh, normally, else. normally it's invited. Um, if, if I do end up doing that, mm -hmm. um, but there is just this tactfulness that you must go about it when your words are now used to plant seeds for people. Yeah. Yeah. These seeds of thought. Yeah. I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> But yeah, it has to come from, from as you mentioned earlier, spring up that topic. It has to be coming from a place of authenticity mm -hmm. or, or coherence. Mm -hmm. And your desires have to be, your intentions have to be very genuine and pure because just like people, are, I would say, are all very attuned to someone who is acting coherently or authentically, mm -hmm. um, I think we're all conversely very attuned to when someone's just showing off and it's very blatant and it's just kind of annoying because then yeah. you can almost like kind of feel that energy being drained from you in a weird sort of way. Yeah. Uh, 
but we all we all do that all the time regardless but it's going back to just the ideal of um and i think that's what we were mentioning earlier about like sounding profound where it's like we i would argue that we wouldn't want to be we wouldn't have the desire to seem profound if we didn't if that that didn't come from nowhere it originated from the authentic enjoyment uh, of asking bigger questions and searching for bigger answers and the like uh i can't remember the word you use but uh was it insight or just that uh that spark that moment when uh all of a sudden you come across a very satisfying answer uh epiphany, uh, epiphany. yes yeah. yeah and uh it's that it originates from that that love of that original game and ideally it's using those epiphanies and what you've learned in those grand uh those grand lessons mm-hmm. and inspiring them and sh- sharing them with the community yep. inspiring hunger for, hunger for them uh being able to say this is what i found this is how it's helped me uh mm-hmm. and if you're so willing it can help you too. No one's forcing you. It's totally up to you. But personally, I mean, that's kind of like, I think what the core meaning of a evangelist is. Mm, yeah. uh, and so it's that, it's that spreading of something that's, that you've, you've fallen in love with. Um, but conversely, it's, it, and that's a night and day difference from the sort of ego of it all, where it's getting in these mental traps of, I'm going to sound very profound. Mm-hmm. Ha, they think I'm so profound. Ah. Uh, and then that just gets really, frankly, boring very quickly. Yeah. Like the snobbery of it, you know, it's like, yeah. Um, there is the difference of, uh, how does it go? Uh, it's like, the wise man says, uh, speaks because he has something to say and the fool speaks because he has to say something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's another Socrates quote, but <laughs> I can't remember. Check that. Yeah. But it's, it's this difference in, um, you know, feeling, feeling like I have to say something versus, um, you know, feeling invited uh, to say yeah. something. Yeah. you have you have something relevant to add to the conversation mm-hmm. um you know i find i find that more most people want to have like these types of in-depth conversations they want insight they want um to really not keep it on the surface mm-hmm. now there is just the practice of um, learning how to pry into what they're willing to dive deep in, you know? So yeah, it's, I think it's not even like, cause even with like the word pry, it kind of suggests like the, like a forcefulness maneuver, or I, I think it's almost more, at least in my take, it's better viewed as like an invitation. Yeah. And then if they're not having it, it's like, cool, the door's open. I, <laughs> one of my friends uh, who has the same appetite for depth that we do, uh i describe him as this because when you first met it was kind of it went along this line but uh he's the kind of person that he first meets you he'll shake hands but oh jonah it's great to meet you (laughs) so um what keeps you up at night and we'll ask you that with like just complete and total sincerity yeah (laughs) it's like that's what he wants to uh 
to talk about. But at the same point, he's not expecting an immediate answer. It's like, if you don't want to, that's fine too. That's fine too. We can talk about something else. But like, if we can start from here, that'd be cool. Yeah, I like that. I might have to use that. (laughs) What keeps you up at night? (laughs) Yeah, but with like uh, the most innocent, genuine curiosity. Yeah, authentic asking. I love that. Uh, we are nearing, uh, the time where I normally wrap this up. Uh, I do like to, um, allow my guests to offer up an invitation to the audience. Um, if you have one invitation, um, let me think normally I would like from this point still have a book of my own to plug or any other project like that that I can plug right now. Um, I'm trying to think of just like a book recommendation to throw throw out there. And I've been, that's the thing, I've been reading a lot of decent books and trying to find, or frankly, pretty good books, but I can't, I have them like actually laying around me right now. <laughs> it's uh, the one under my laptop. <laughs> um, yeah, let me chew on that real quick. Or something from oh. those books. Okay. Um, actually, okay. This is what this all recommends. Um, I'll do a, I'll do a one two punch really quickly. Uh, <laughs> I think the two most influ- influential things I've come across. Uh, yeah, one would be uh, the culture of narcissism by Christopher Latch. Uh, I think I mentioned it to you earlier, but it's a great book and it's very prophetic in that it was written in like the late, I believe seventies or eighties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it is a cultural critique of all of the themes in America that have just been exacerbated and overgrown through social media and how the emptiness of how we're talking a lot about meaning, meaning today and how, when we try to amplify external meaning through the, uh, the growth of online attention or even online fame, mm-hmm. um, how vacuous that becomes uh, overall. And really just kind of, it's a grand, uh, it's a grand critique on the American uh, culture of like hyper individualism and uh the heightened need for attention that I think we have mm-hmm. more and more of an appetite for now in the internet. Um, that and I, I keep, I, at this point recommend it. I, I can't stop recommending to, I think I've showed it to you, but uh, Rick, it's on YouTube, Rick Roderick's, it's a short YouTube video series. Rick Roderick's uh, lecture on the self under siege where he explains uh, Jean Baudrillard's thoughts. Uh, there's an original lecture that's free on YouTube. There's also a highly edited, sugar-coated, visually uh, like vaporwave edit on YouTube as well by a YouTuber named Munism. Either way, Rick Roderick, uh, Self Under Siege, Jean Baudrillard, highly recommend. Uh, also, just like Culture of Narcissism, very prophetic. Uh, was recorded in the early 90s and the ideas have just aged like a fine wine. So that's what mm. I'll 
invite everyone to if they enjoy what was carried on in this conversation. Yeah. All right. This concludes my sit down with Cole Holloway. Uh, thank you for listening and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rethoughts. Follow us on Instagram at re underscore thoughts. You can also subscribe through email on our website at rethoughts.com. Follow us on wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you can keep up with our new episodes. We love hearing from our listeners, so contact us through Instagram or our website and tell us what you've been rethinking or request a topic that you'd like us to talk about. Thanks for listening.